Hi everyone, I'm Riley Blanks, your hostess and the creator of Woke Beauty, a storytelling platform reimagining the everyday act of self-celebration for and by all women. This show brings you unfiltered conversations with a dynamic myriad of female visionaries who have developed personal success despite trauma and hardship by leaning into grit and discernment. We explore the messy, interwoven realities of mental health, holistic wellness, intricate family dynamics, racial complexity, and the exceptional discoveries that lead to fulfillment. This is our pledge to the power of resilience and the impact of perspective. Last year, I pursued a docu-series where I interviewed a wide array of people with multicultural backgrounds. We talked about identity and life experiences around the topic of being more than one. Being biracial comes with its own territory and set of obstacles. Being mixed with a black dad and a white mom, it's taken me a while to determine what my racial identity looks like, what it feels like. And I've always been fascinated with how others contextualize their own. I wanted to build a safe space for discussion that is oftentimes otherwise overlooked. Though our society glorifies biracial individuals, we don't really give them a platform to speak for themselves. With the launch of this podcast, I decided I could integrate these stories into the show as being biracial is no binary thing. I'm hopeful these stories, really all of them, make you feel seen, encourage you to question your thinking, challenge your viewpoints, and to open your eyes to something new, special, and usually deemed private. Today's guest, Shalia Fox, is a philanthropist and community advocate currently working as the Director of External Relations at the University of Texas. She's worked to turn her personal experience in the foster care system into positivity, wherever possible, and to create spaces where women, particularly women of color, can thrive personally and professionally. She is the founder of Fresh Chef Society, an organization that works to offer nutritional support to youth in foster care. Shalia grew up in a small town in the heart of central Florida. She spent her early years in and out of the foster care system, and that experience has shaped who she is today and how she moves through the world. Shalia's mother is white, and her father was black. Growing up with her mother in a largely still segregated town, she didn't have the luxury of existing as a mixed-race person, let alone a black person. It wasn't until Shalia left home for college that she began the journey of learning about herself, and in many ways, loving her blackness. Shalia lives in Austin with her partner Reed and their two little ones, Miles and Zuri. She loves cooking, gardening. Her garden is incredible. Canoeing and long runs. She seizes every opportunity to grow for her family and for her community. Per my docuseries vision, this interview was actually recorded last summer in Shalia's home with her baby Zuri on her lap. Thus, you'll hear a record playing, chimes from just outside her open window, and some sweet, sweet baby sounds. We've got Shalia and Zuri Fox. Right, Zuri? 
Do you go by Zuri Fox or probably just Zuri? She goes by, yeah. Zuri Fox is an amazing name. <laughs> you could be like a broadcaster one day. That would be amazing. What do you think? Yeah. It's a possibility. I would ask you questions, Zuri, but I don't know how much response we'll get. <laughs> She'll right just now. look at you and go. <laughs> <laughs> Which maybe might, might be, be enough, perfect. Just might depending be on the question. I don't care, but just she has Reed's last name, so her name's actually Zuri Drab. So she's oh, gonna hate me. Oh, you could have corrected me. Yeah, but I, I don't. You want? Who's gonna correct? Who's gonna hate you? She's gonna be like, my name could have been Zuri Fox, oh. but it's Zuri Drab. Yeah. Miles too. That's okay. That's a, that we'll cross that bridge when it comes. Miles Fox. Yeah. Wait. So you didn't take his name? Mm-mm. I think we talked about that. You were like, mm-hmm. it's not a big deal. I like yeah. my name. I will. For Wait. Me, talk about the name. What did the name? You there was. It was kind of deep, if I recall. So the I was never. So I don't have any uh, like allegiance, or it's not this family name that I have to carry on. It's just. I was born Shalia Fox. That is my name. Yeah. And so the the idea of changing my name just because I'm now married to another human just doesn't, it doesn't have any importance to me mm-hmm. and it didn't have any importance to him. So right. that's, that's kind of where we left it. But for the children, because I don't have any allegiance to my name and his name does, <laughs> it is something that he wants to carry on and he has got a lot of pride and, you know, he and his family are really close. The kids have his name because that is something we mm-hmm. we want to continue. Mm-hmm. Whereas my name is, is, you know, it's not even my father's last name. It's my mom's first husband's name. And he wasn't necessarily a good man. So it's, there's mm. not anything associated with that name. But Shalia Fox, that's besides, me. Yeah, besides yeah. the fact that you carried it until exactly. the, the date you got married. Which seems so So why trash 20-something right. years, right? And when did you get married? 28, uh, 9, 20, 7? 20, 20, I was 27. Okay. So we got married. So I was yeah. 27. That's a lot of years. It's a whole lot yeah. of years to exist as one person. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, you commit to someone. And then I'm mm-hmm. supposed to just check. and and it's there's no shade to anybody who decides to oh, do that. Oh yeah, but totally. It just, it's your preference. It didn't fit for us. Mm-hmm. But, okay, so um, back okay, to... so my mom. So I say all that to, to kind of like um, contextualize my mom's childhood and why her meeting a black man and having a child just doesn't because she didn't see her first black person until she was 17. She didn't see like Did visually visualize visually see a black human okay until she was 17 how years is old. that she was born where? in 47 and i think it's the where she lived she lived she lived, grew up in a very wealthy world like in, but like, she must have been super sheltered yeah too. you didn't there was no reason for you to leave this community okay and where was that um in bloomfield hills which is a um mm-hmm. like a, a very wealthy part of michigan mm-hmm. um so you know you've got all the like the white collar car industry yeah. motor city people executives right. that live there and right. so her father played their music so that's how the family their family lived there and my father my grandfather and my grandmother on my mom's side they were first generation irish scott so mm. my grandmother was from ireland and my grandfather was from scotland so very <laughs> there was no there's it was very unlikely that they would kind of meet people outside of the, the world that they lived in. Right. And so she, without permission, went to Detroit one weekend, and then that's when she was just like, oh, shit. <laughs> huh. 
I mean, I'm sure that she read about it in like history, like, but to see that, to see these people exist. Do was, you know how she approached it? Was she scared, interested, curious? I think curious. My yeah. mom was a very um, warm. Well, I, I, I imagine you know she's older now and she's very honorary and she's less and less warm mm. each day. But I think when she was younger, she was very rebellious and very curious. And mm-hmm. so I don't think it was. Um, through any, I don't think there was any fear, and she was also also a musician, and so I think that the music that she was introduced through the black community probably really intrigued her. Mm-hmm. And so, what kind of musician was she? She was an opera singer. Oh wow! Yeah, so everyone in my family, so my grandfather can play every could play every woodwind instrument there was, and he actually had a um, company that, in addition to playing music for the. Um, the community that they lived, he also did music production throughout Michigan. It was actually on the Ed Sullivan show. So very musical family. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so she, she, I grew up with her singing. Not very good by the time, you know, <laughs> life had taken its toll. But, you know, I hear stories. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so my mom, she eventually made her way down to Florida, and she was a seamstress. She's a very talented seamstress. She is working at a tailor shop that was owned by my father. And they, you know, have an affair because he's married. Um, he was married, he she was, was married. not? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, she, was he married to a, to a black woman? Yeah, a black woman who couldn't conceive. Oh, And um, so he and my mom get together and she tells him he's pregnant. Um, Where are you going? She's like, I'm just going to get this school bus. Oh, I'm just so close. It's good. Okay. We've had a couple of things happening. Okay. All the things. (laughs) Did you want to get that? No, I don't think it would have ended the way you think it would have. I'm so sorry. So, so anyway, they get together. There is a baby that is, you know, in the picture. Uh And he doesn't leave his family. And so... Mm. And I don't think it was a good situation. So the baby being you, be, being me, and and so he was never around. Um, so I I grew up with my mother, and because of the life that my mom was in, she just um, uh, wasn't ready to be a parent. And and so how was that for you? Um, I was in and out of foster care for the first 10 years so it because she wasn't because, ready yeah so and she so was, was she making bad choices yeah so she was um addicted to cocaine and in and out of prison making really poor decisions with men and so in and to hear her tell it you know she was with these men would get involved in things that were um, illegal and so they would get caught and she mm-hmm. would go to jail and then my sister and eventually my, my mom had a, another child um, who's white. So everyone, I have two older brothers, then there's me and then my sister. So I'm the only half black person. And are the other three from the same father? Two are from the same father, then there's me and then there's so my sister. So three yeah. men involved? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, she, yeah, she just kind of, and this was back in the 90s when foster care was a little different. And I think it probably was even different because she was a white woman, mm-hmm. right? So it now, if your kids are taken away, you don't get them back in one month, two months. You have to finish out a case plan before you can, and that could be up to a year and a half. And you're saying it was different for her because she was white woman, meaning, meaning she had more privilege? I, I That's the only thing that I can understand because... 
we would be in foster care for a month. She'd get out of jail. We'd go back. She'd yeah. be in care for two months. We were never in long enough for her to work a case plan and and really make changes that you would need to do to get your children back. But I think that the the policy, the idea, and the um, I think it was just different. And I think also because she the way she read, she probably was treated differently. Right. Yeah. Were you ever separated from your siblings? Um, so I did not grow up with my two older brothers because by the time we came around, they had already been taken away and they lived with their father. Okay. So my sister and I were fortunate enough to where we were always placed together. So we were never separated, but we were in, it was because we would be in foster homes with black families and then foster homes with white families. The way we were treated was incredibly different. So, and did that bring you together oh, or yeah, separate? Yeah. Okay. We were, cause I could go one of we two ways, were right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and even when I had the moments when I kind of wanted to disassociate for survival purposes, you know, I realized then I'd be okay, but where would that leave her? You know? Yeah. And, um, so yeah, we were, we looked out for each other, you know, yeah. still do in a lot of ways. Is she so. older or younger? She's younger. Okay. She's younger. Um, you couldn't tell she looks older. <laughs> but yeah, she's younger and uh -oh. um, I hope she's not gonna watch. <laughs> <laughs> she looks more mature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I tell her all the time. She knows. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> um so yeah, so that it was so until you were ten. So do you have 10. distinct memories? Oh god, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's 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 no way for a child. I mean I think I've I do a lot of work in foster care now. And I have met plenty of young people who say that foster care saved their lives. And mm -hmm. that is not the truth for you. Yeah, and I don't and it's not the truth for most. Mm -hmm. Even because even when things are bad, you still prefer to be with your family. Right. Because one, it's all you know. And two, um, no matter what they say, no matter what an outsider says about your parents and how bad they are, they that, that's not the person you see. Right. You're you hold out so much hope that they'll be the people. Yeah. That you that know them to be. Girl. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, you have these distinct memories. I remember when I was in grade school, there was a boy whose mom looked just like my mom, just like my mom, and she would she was really involved, came in all the time, would have lunch, and every time she would come, I would just sob because it it, it just was. That was never going to be my reality. Mm -hmm. You know, my mom was never going to just come in and mm -hmm. have lunch with me. You know, something so simple. Yeah. Um, but also not. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's so so far from my reality. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, my my mom was able to eventually get her act together. So. And then after, was there repair? Was there a repair in your relationship with her? Yeah, I we, would think there'd be some resentment. Yeah, and I think that, so it kind of went away, so we, we it ebbs and flows, it's still ebbing and flowing, um, but when we left the world that we lived, when she was clean, we moved to a Christian commune in the middle of a really small town in Florida, and the whole premise behind it was healing, so it was, it, but it was healing through religion, so it was thrusted upon you to yeah. forgive and figure it out. So you felt like you had no choice. I was like, All I'm right, sure. I forgive you. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know what to, I don't. I don't even know what I'm feeling. I don't yeah. even have to name these feelings. And were all of these spaces super white? Oh my god! Like yeah. in Michigan? Yes. 
Well, I, we, I grew up in Florida. So, <clears throat> okay. Yeah, so every. So she everywhere. grew up in Michigan. She we went and had to, the affair. Yeah. And then she stayed there. She didn't she, go back. Yeah, so yeah. this was all in Florida. Yeah, okay. She'd never. Back, and then the backstory is, is that her family had no connection with her because of all the things mm. that she was doing. You know, so there was no support there. There was no support. And you didn't have support from your dad because no. he wasn't in the picture. And they didn't, and they, you know, the story was growing up is that they didn't, they knew I existed, but because I was half white and also a product of an affair, they wanted nothing to do with me. Completely get that now, but as a yeah. young child. It was a double whammy. Like, what, what did yeah. I do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, every space I've always lived has been. And, and up until now has been incredibly white just yeah. because I grew up in a small segregated town and in order for me to survive I I had to there was no way for me to to live a um, um, a, a shared reality be, be being black or being like I needed to be as white as possible were you ever reminded that you weren't Oh, yeah, because I, it was a small racist town, so th- racist things were said all the time in front of me. But, you know, you're different. Mm-hmm. You're not, it's not that it's different with you. That, okay. You know, but then, you know, they'll say everything, all the funny welfare jokes, all the N-bombs, everything. But then you're different, so you shouldn't feel. You pass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about you. And it took me... You know, really going to college and learning to think for myself to say, yeah, they're, they're talking about you, you know. Um, so I spent all my life trying to pass and trying to um, make excuses for who I was. And I didn't even know who I was, right? Um, but, yeah, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't easy. So what happened when you got to college? How did that, was there a shift there? I, I wouldn't even think that it happened in college, but what I was able to do was to learn to think for myself. I think growing up, growing up in a really small town that is so religious, like religion is everything, which for me, religion taught me that it's not through you that you are alive or you're succeeding. It's through God. It's through this, like, you know, half-bodied person floating in the sky like he's doing everything Mm -hmm. you're just here because he wants you here right Mm -hmm. um and so going to college really I learned how to think for myself but I still wasn't really even at the plant place tender to like to learn about want to learn about who I was as a mixed race person and I even tried to do I know we talked about our experiences with black student union I don't know. I was like terrified. They were awful. I'm like, all right, I'm ready. I was I'm ready to meet my people. Into the VSA. <laughs> I'll never forget sitting across from her at um, lunch. She was like, "Let's talk about your blackness," and I was like, "I'm not black. I'm mixed. Yeah, I'm not black." Right. And her eyes were like. She was like, "What? Like this woman is telling me she's not black?" And like, you know. But Telling the president so, of BSA. Yeah, I was so convinced yeah. that that wasn't something I, I could yeah, subscribe I, to. Right, that you could claim. Yeah. And because, same, I didn't even know how to begin to claim that identity. And so I go into the space just hungry, like yeah. starving for someone who could tell me what to do with my hair. Someone mm-hmm. that could, um, you know, validate all these feelings I had. And I just was... Um, no one reached out. It was a, it was far more isolating in that space 
than the white world that I had come to learn to know. So you had in. the opposite experience? Oh, you yeah. didn't feel like you were embraced? Oh, no. it, I mean, I just remember walking in, trying to figure out what was going on. No one really would talk to me. Um, and I didn't pursue it, and I didn't try. I didn't, it was 18, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to force myself on people. Yeah. You know, I'm going to go... I'm going to stick to what I know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was my attempt to um, try to find some community. But it really wasn't until um, coming here and working where I work now at Black Studies. And, and the validation piece was always, like, really... I've always felt the other in an alien because of the world that I lived in. But then meeting other people that were feeling the same things that grew up with the same thoughts and wondering where they were reflected in the history, all this stuff, that was never validated until I was in my 30s. Gosh. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And then it just... And then with that, I was empowered to seek out my father's family, to see a photo of my family. I didn't see a photo of my dad until last year. And it was... It took me having children... And, and really understanding that even though it's not my history because I didn't grow up with it, it's still something that I need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a long road to like be able to say, um, I identify as a black woman, but I'm a black woman of mixed race. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, that's first foremost, this is who I am. But it's it's more nuanced than that. Right. You know? It's complex. Mm-hmm. Was there a sense of belonging when you saw that picture? What what came to so, mind? Was it just like, all right, yeah, that's what he looks really, like? Really, really truly. Numb? Because yeah. he wasn't a good man. Uh-huh. And I think that How I... How did you know that? Because I... So I met with my... Um, his wife's niece. And just hearing her story, and I, I just point blank asked him, I was like, what was he like? Was he a... Was he a good man? Was he nice? And she looked at me and she said, honey, he was a man. And that right there said everything. The Mm -hmm. fact that when I finally got a hold of her after a couple years of trying to get them to respond, and it wasn't that they didn't want to, it's that she had passed away and everyone was like, who is this girl sending us photos of this child, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And she called me and she said, I would love to give you a picture of Al but I don't know if we have any and she was living in his house wow so he was so far like removed from their lives for you know reasons that were you know I don't know but some he he just he wasn't a good man yeah you don't keep photos of someone around who hurt you right you know Mm -hmm. that's that was what was so telling to me um that's interesting that that's symbolic. Yeah. That, it, like, imagery mm-hmm. is like memories, mm-hmm. you know? So they didn't want the memory mm-hmm. around. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah, it's intense. And so looking at this photo of this man, um, it was it was just like I was looking at a photo of any other man. But he's he's in my family. He's deeper than that. He's the, the, the other half of the reason why I exist, right? Mm-hmm. Um. And then again, hanging something on the wall. Like, we don't really have a lot of photos up for a couple of reasons. But when we go to think about, like, family, and when I was looking at the photos that year, I just love the pride in that. And, you know, I'm getting there, but I have these photos 
Like I can hang up of my mom's grandfather and of my mom. I would never hang up a photo of him. Mm-hmm. It just would feel so false to me. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't deserve to be put up on a wall, you know? Yeah. Um, anyway, so. So is there, is there a figure that you look to in any way? Like, do you have a father figure? No. Have you ever? I think the closest that I've ever had now is probably Reed's, my partner's dad. He is he's such a loving, wonderful man. And so, and, and it's not so much that he's a father figure. I'm just grateful to him as a father because he gave me, he, he raised a wonderful man that's now my husband, and I see the relationship that Miles, and she will too, but Miles has with him. Mm-hmm. But I never had that desire to have a father figure, you know. I always felt that my mom was enough, but again, that was dealing, working through, and now as a parent, I don't really understand a lot of her life choices because there's nothing that I would ever do that would keep me away from my children. Why do I you just think, don't understand that. Right. So, I mean, I guess there was obviously a deep love for your mom. I'm sure mm-hmm. there still is. Yeah. So that is probably an element. But your desire to not need or want a father figure, I think, yeah. is really interesting and uncommon. Do you think, in a way, your mom somehow provided that? Absolutely. Or do you just think that has to do more with who you are and what you embody? Because I also notice from my interaction with you and what I know of you that it doesn't seem to have really impacted your relationships. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of women who are lacking that have a really hard time. And if you were to talk, my sister always wanted that father figure. It's very interesting. And she has that, that longing has left a residue, you know, a huge imprint on her. Um, Whereas, yeah, I, I think you know, I'm, I'm really focusing a lot on my mom's deficits now with children. And I know that that's not right because of that. She was enough, long enough for me to know that one parent can be sufficient. Even if they take a while to get there. I mean, when, when she made the decision to be a parent when we were 10, she was good. She was great. She, mm-hmm. We were so poor and we still were struggling, but she was... She was a good mama, um, the best that she could be. But I didn't, because I didn't see any father, and this could be it, there wasn't really a father of a friend that I saw that I felt like I was missing out with. Like, if I knew John, which is my Reed's parent, if yeah. I knew him, then there it might have been. Envy. Right, right. But maybe that was the silver lining of growing up in a shit town. There wasn't a lot of great father figures. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't, I never was like, oh, that's what I'm missing out. Uh-huh. Other than like two incomes, you know. But I also wonder if there, the sufficiency had to do with you yeah. having something like intrinsically within you that allowed you to feel like you were enough. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think so. I think so. Um, you know, I think a certain amount of struggle there's there's beauty in it and I think it takes a while to see it but I do think it made me resilient and it made me um and there's certain things instances and relationships along the way that taught me that my life could be different that it didn't have to be the life that I was born in but I do I do think you're right on that yeah do you how is it with 
with Miles and Zuri as far as like walking into grocery stores and living your life and not yeah. looking, looking like them. Um, you know, Miles looked more like me than Zuri does. So it, I, for me, it was like, finally, I look like somebody. Mm-hmm. I'd never ever had that at all. You've seen pictures of me. There's there's no resemblance at all. Yeah. Um with Zuri, I am a little more sensitive especially because I work in an all black space and um we are quick to talk about it people will talk about skin tones, colorisms like a big but it's it's not it's done in a way um it's it's joking, it's in jest, but it's very clear like she looks like my husband she does not look <laughs> you mean anything. in the black studies department they talk about it a lot they'll just be like oh look at when she was born because if you when babies are small you look at their knuckles if that you can kind of tell their shade and hers were pretty white at yeah. that point i was like no no she'll get darker and they're like oh, baby girl this is it this is um and because there's so much pride in like beautiful brown right. skin like i that that is new for me. I mean, even just the fact that white people tan yeah. a lot. Yeah. It's like you wanna be us, but you don't want <laughs> you to be us, you, know? you want all the good Right. But whatever yeah, that anyway, means. Yeah, yeah, whatever that means. So, um, yeah, so I, I think I don't I I've not had any direct interactions just yet or any feelings because I'm now she were my first and and she was this light I might feel a little more sensitive but because I feel so confident in myself as a mother and I really it's a it's a role that um I take great pride in that it doesn't it it doesn't sting as much as I thought or I don't feel as on alert Mm -hmm. for the looks Mm -hmm. and the the comments as I would have if she were my first. Interesting. And because she looks like Miles. So if they look, if they see that there's a resemblance between Miles and I and then you look at them, like it's very clear that she mm. is her his her sister. Got you it. Know? Yeah. Interesting. And so what kind of comments do you get? Um, the biggest the ones that the stand ones out. are the comment on their eyes because they both have really light eyes and I have dark eyes and they look and they're like you know, is it where do they get their eyes? And like, you, I mean, you know, genetics, it's this thing that happens. They're born with all these million. <laughs> I was like, well, and then I'm forced to say, well, everyone in my family has light eyes, but me, which is very true. No one, I mean, except for my father's right. side, everyone. And then on Reed's side, everyone has light eyes. So I'm, it makes sense that they all have light eyes. So definitely the comments about the eyes, um, Miles, it's not ever me. Like I feel like the the attention's off of me to them. People kind of going in for his hair mm. and really talking to him and and empowering him to be feel comfortable to say no. Um, like don't touch me. Don't touch me, and that's okay. Um, so I think those are the two things that that have come up so far. Um, it's I've, really hard to say. It's really hard for me to say, don't touch me. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't make me comfortable to say it. Like, I feel like I can't say yeah. it, which is terrible. But it's really easy for Jack to say it. This happened at um, a bar on Rainy. During the day, we were with friends. All the friends we were with were white. Mm-hmm. And this woman just, like, beeline toward me and, like, put her hands in my hair. Just out of nowhere. I was like, 
it's amazing, you know, like, was just, like, so enamored by my hair, and Jack, who's, you know, mm-hmm. so easygoing and charming, and everyone loves Jack, was, like, get away from her, like, he got so protective, and she said, I have two brown little girls, and I know, I, I'm fine, I know what it's like, it's okay, and he was, like, I don't care what you have, and I was, like, oh. I was, yeah, I was, like, so proud, but also so grateful, because I feel like me being the subject, I couldn't, I couldn't do that for myself. Mm -hmm. I would be the first to do it Mm -hmm. for someone else, but I think, because I don't like to feel like a victim, so if I were to go back at it, it would make me feel like I were trying to protect myself as this poor little, you know, like, I can handle your hands in my hair, it's fine, just please uh, let me wash my hair now, I gotta go, you know, I'm gonna go home now. Yeah, but... Go Jack. I know, right? But I love that you're, you know, empowering Miles to have that mentality because, yeah, I don't know if I was ever told that. Not yeah. be, not because they didn't. Right. You know, I don't think they would have even thought of it. Mm-hmm. Like, my mom probably didn't even think, you know, she's yeah. probably, I mean, whenever put her, their hands in her hair, but, yeah. I think my mom probably would have been like, here, touch this side. It's soft. like, she would have right. made it. I know, like, right? It is head. so soft. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or would have been. Yeah. It would have been complete, especially in, like, our community, like, where she didn't stop to correct people when they asked if I were adopted. Mm -hmm. You know, none of that was even a thought. Or when, I remember when I came home for a baby shower, I was in college, and Reed and I were dating. So we've been, you know, and a woman from church who'd been in our orbit for years was asking me, you know, just catching up, like, oh, how school are you dating someone? And I was like, yeah, I do. I have a boyfriend. She goes, is he white? Like, <laughs> worried. Wow. And my mom's right there, and I just was so shocked. And I, I was like, at this point, I was starting to, like, gain some confidence and and be... And I, I just sat there, and my mom went to go answer, and I was like, why would that matter? Yeah, he's white, but why would that matter? Well, you know. I was like, I actually have no idea. But my, what was my mom going to say? Mm-hmm. Was she going to enter? Like, yes, he's he's white and from Ch- you know what was she? It wasn't going to. De- she wasn't going to defend me. She right. wasn't going to. Um, only because I I don't think that she I don't think that what she had asked was offensive to my mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your mom probably wouldn't have known how to defend mm-mm, you. Mm-mm. I don't think she had her head yeah. wrapped around it. Right? I mean, my mom had me registered as white up until I changed it in high school my senior year. Wow. Because I was so... I was looking at my, you know, your class schedule and it has all your... I was like, Debbie, I was like, that's not right. <laughs> I'm like, clearly, this isn't... I mean, I don't know if it should have been a B, but it definitely shouldn't have been a W. I know that much. And like going and getting that changed and it being a big deal. My mom's like, but you're not black. I'm like, but I am not white. Like that, but I raised you. I get that, but I am not white. And that being a big deal that I wanted to change that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mm. I don't know. It's uh How is it for Reed? Reed is, he's, he has this, well, he also has the privilege to like those things not really bother him at all because he's not really um he doesn't see um I don't want to say he doesn't see race in that way but he really doesn't he's like it's just the people that I've always been surrounded with so this is who I hang out with it's not been 
um, an intentional thing for me to only have white friends or to only date white people. It's just all. Yeah. I've never had the interest or never had the, it presented for me to experience things outside of that. So. You mean you haven't? Uh, me or him. Yeah. So like. So we, you never had interest in dating a black guy or like. I mean, I d- definitely did. I just like when I had, so there was like in high school, the black boys would never date me because I probably was too white. What they would say is I'm wife material. Mm. All right. I'm not trying to marry. I'm just trying to. Come on. Is that an insult? Yeah, I was like, I don't know what to do with that. Um, and then the boys that I would try to date in college, um, they were mostly mixed race. But then I would either not be black enough or, I don't know, it just never worked out. And so, Reed, and then Reed and I got together really. But we went young. And the way we met was through our friends who were all white. So um, it's really only been coming to Austin that we really have had like a diverse friend group um, and Reed he kind of is really good at taking the back seat and letting me lead so if he just needs to stay in the back and like eat hang up by the snack table he will if I'm coming in and being introduced he'll do that too like, so he's not, a good wall yeah, yeah yeah he's not um, he doesn't really pick up on the um, any sort of comp- complexity that might be present in the situation. It just doesn't affect him that way. Um, and I think it might be more because of like his own social anxiety, whereas it doesn't really color- matter what color skin anybody is. There's always a level He's of anxiety there. Yeah. yeah. And I, I heard think- recently that, sorry to cut you off, but this is really interesting. Yeah. I heard that the difference between shy and introvert is that shy people before they're social, have an anxiety about being social. Mm -hmm. Whereas introverted people, once they're in that space, just feel overstimulated and need to, like, recover. Yeah. You know, so they might take breaks. Whereas extroverts are like, bring on the stimulation, I'll recover later. Yeah. So I think that's interesting because it allows you to kind of work with Mm -hmm. what you got. Um, And it also gives, if you're, like, I'm neither shy nor introverted, it gives me some empathy. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, okay, that person just is anxious or yeah. that person needs recovery now okay. but interesting that that isn't race related yeah. it's just no I think it's just an overall anxiety I, um, I do think that he sees things through a different lens because he sees how people might read me or interact differently and it's never been here I mean I think think about the times that um, in college there was a couple of times where um, I was pulled over and the way the police officer treated me versus treating him, treated him. And it's been in conversations in the last couple of years when I would bring up those incidents that he'd be like, oh my God, that's right. Mm. Like, so yeah. he almost forgets. Yeah, yeah. Because that's his, right. that's the privilege that he gets to operate in. And does he, do you remind him of that privilege? Yeah. Yeah. And is it a comfortable conversation for you guys? Always, always. I think he is one of those, you know, he's an ally in the sense that he wants to learn. He wants to know how to make things better for me and for, you know, his kids in the world. So I think that he's always eager to see things from a different perspective. But you've you've got to bring it to him. He's not necessarily going to seek it out. Right. Um, I was going to ask you about how you you two see 
miles in Missouri and if you have a desire for how they'll see themselves one day. Yeah, that's a hard. It's not hard, but I think um, that's when things kind of, because in breeds, in my mind, they're both are people of color. They're not black, but they both, because when people see them with me, then they'll see that, oh, they're not white, right? right. And I think Reed sees them as not black. Mm. Do you see? So, like, it, and he thinks all of the um, the problems that they might encounter will not be an issue because they're not black. Whereas mm. I see them that I want them to take ownership and see mm-hmm. them as being people of color on whatever spectrum mm-hmm. that might be. So I do think that that's that that will be interesting to to work through. Especially when you have that conversation with Miles about how you read to law enforcement, first of all, and then how you read to other people. Right. I mean, Miles already has an understanding that his skin is, is like mama's, not like daddy's. Um, he talks about, like, he's, he has friends in his class and he has darker skin. But hey, Tor, who's Portuguese, he's like, his skin's closer, but it's not like mine. So he's, he's seeing shades and, like, what they mean. Um, but I don't think, I think those are conversations that I'll probably have to lead just because, uh, Reed doesn't, that's not his experience at all. And be, one, it's not his experience. And two, he does, he's not necessarily convinced that they need to worry about those things because they're not black. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's almost like he extracts color for lack of a better yes. word and you add it. Mm-hmm. And so, in a way, you're evolving, mm-hmm. and he's oh. alongside you watching that. And so, where do you, where do you feel like you're going? Like, in, is there a direction, or is just is this just you coming into your, your blackness yeah. in a way? I think um, I think we're always evolving, and and right now, um, for me, it's figuring out what type of world do I want to the the extent that I can to create for my children? Because I grew up in in a world where I was the only everything, only person in in the class, only person on, you know, I was the token. They pulled me into clubs or advisory committees or anything, and then they were done, right? I don't want my children to have that token experience, and I don't want them to feel like they have to assimilate to one side or the other because of their environment. I want them to be in an environment where there's just a diverse range of people and they could be comfortable with just being mixed race or uh, feeling more comfortable with, you know, the Mexican. I I don't know. I want them to have choices, right? Right. I don't Mm -hmm. want them to ever look at their skin and think if I peel it back, I'm one color closer to the color that I want to be, whether it's white or black. Right. Mm-hmm. Because that's the that's the only two things that they see or the absence of makes them run away from. Mm-hmm. And so where I'm at is trying to figure out how to instill or cultivate a space of diverse representations because I want the fact that we're mixed race not to be as big of a thing that I feel that it is because everybody around us is mixed race. Right. There's all these different, you know, shades. And so it's not a big deal that your mom's black and your dad's white, you know, because everyone's got something like that. Mm-hmm. 
So that that really is where my journey is going to. And, and I don't know where that space is. I don't know where it, if it's here. I don't know um, if we go back to Florida. And if we go back to Florida, that is really going to be a challenge because it really will be cultivation and like placing and making mm. it happen to where it feels a little more organic. Um, but just figuring out like what my role in that is. And if you could give advice to like another mother who is getting ready to have a family Mm -hmm. that kind of mirrors what you've got going on or is struggling with it, even though I know you're going through it and just explain that. What, when you say create uh, an environment that has a diversity of representations, what does that look like? I think, um, I think you, the, the mother or the parent has to find a community for them. So whatever that looks like, if it's work or if it's a, a group or an organization, church, you know, whatever, find that for them first. It's like one of those things that, and you're in the airplane, airplane, I say, put your mask on first and then help. Mm-hmm. I think you truly have to do that. You have to find it for you. And then for school or for your children, I think it requires you to be in a situation that doesn't feel natural or isn't necessarily a position of privilege like if you are in a place where you are have the upper hand you know whether it's your neighborhood or or something that makes you feel comfortable then you're probably not doing the work to make sure it's diverse because Mm -hmm. when you're around other walks of life it's not that you're not comfortable but there's a little bit of unsettlement but not in an anxious way it's almost like yeah it's like excitement almost you know Mm -hmm. And so really making sure you're challenging yourself in that way. You know, with schools, you might have the means to maybe transfer them out to something that might be a little more better of a school. But challenge yourself to put yourself in a situation that, that the, the environment needs work and that you might, be, um, you might be a solution. Yeah, that's really good. And, okay, last question. Yeah. I just thought of Fresh Chef Society. So... If you can just explain what that is yeah. and what it's done for you and for the community, I, I'd love to. I'd love to hear that too, like in a succinct way. Mm-hmm. Like I know what it is, but I want to hear you say it. Yeah, and I think it'd be really beneficial to other people too. Well, thank you for asking. So I think Fresh Chefs was a part creating Fresh Chefs, which is a, an organization that empowers youth transitioning out of the foster care through food because cooking is everything. It's healing. It's therapeutic. It's empowering. It's it's essential um and um for me it was a way for me to honor my struggle and to create a positive um solution out of something that was really terrible for me and terrible for a lot of kids who are involved in the system um and so that's what the organ that was the impetus behind the organization and what it's done is it's it's really brought it's created a, a medium for community to care about and interact with youth in foster care. A lot of times the, the issue feels so overpowering and heavy. You don't know where to begin. You don't want to be a social worker. You don't necessarily feel um, equipped enough to be a mentor because that's really what youth in care need. But you can have a meal with them. Mm-hmm. You can sit down and talk about food. You can go to an event and support the organization by buying a taco and a beer. I mean, that feels like a safe way to get involved. And just by getting involved, it raises the profile a bit because it gets more people thinking about foster care as a position, as a, 
as a um, as a problem that has many solutions, right? Through community involvement, and so what we've been able to do with very little is that we've been able to provide um, really meaningful experiences through food for almost 500 youth in Central Texas, which wow. is which is a pretty big deal. Yeah, I'll say. Um, and it really was a way for me to to take you know my own professional experience and expertise and then my childhood experience and kind of turn it into something good yeah yeah that's really beautiful thank you well thank you so much for sharing thank you for i adore you inviting me this was a yeah. um an honor thank you 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 are <laughs> you're somebody who i think um you know you go on journeys you can go on journeys alone but usually you're taking bits and pieces of people that you meet a long way and I definitely carry you with me. Thank you, it's so sweet. Thank you so much for joining us. You can connect with us on Instagram at wokebeauty or me at Riley Blanks and learn more at wokebeauty.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot. Until next time, have a beautiful day, even if it's not that beautiful. Oh